Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's show is about Reiki, the ancient Japanese healing art which has transformed the lives of many. We will explore where Reiki originated, how it's used, and where you can go to learn more. On this show, we'll be featuring our guest, Dr. Justin Stein. Justin Stein is an instructor of Asian studies at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in British Columbia, Canada. His doctoral thesis was about the historical production of the healing practice called Reiki out of a series of mixtures of American and Japanese spiritual healing practices. He is a regular participant in the Circle of Scholars webinar on Reiki Home and has been practicing Reiki since 2001. So welcome, Justin. We're excited to have you on the show today. Thanks, Yasmin. I appreciate uh, the invitation. So we have so many questions about Reiki. I think a lot of people have heard about Reiki, especially over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion as to what it is, what it means. It's obviously not an English term. And so we'd love to hear from you. What is Reiki in your terms? What's the definition? What does it what does it mean exactly? Okay, well, I think those are two questions. One about what is the practice and what does the word Reiki mean? But briefly, the word Reiki has been translated as universal life energy. This, I think, is a little misleading, although there is a really prevalent discourse in uh, Reiki communities that the efficacy of the practice is based on a kind of cosmic force that permeates the universe and is accessible to all living beings and is what animates life and what provides healing. Um, That word Reiki actually doesn't necessarily mean exactly that uh, if you look at the Japanese, but it's, it's it's difficult to say exactly what it means. You could translate it on one sense as kind of spiritual energy. I mean, that's, that is one possible translation. But I think if you look at the historical materials, the historical context, when it, the practice was systematized in 1920s Japan, it might be most accurate to say that it means like wonderful key and key being the Japanese version of chi So, I mean, energy is one way to translate it, but, you know, this kind of vital force, this um, thing that makes us alive. But Reiki, it's more than just ki. It's this, like, wonderful or miraculous form of ki. And I think this informs when Reiki practitioners talk about that Reiki can, quote-unquote, do no harm. Um, I think that it's in contrast with other practices like uh, qigong, or uh, maybe kundalini yoga, where there is this kind of possibility of kind of having energy overload or something. The idea behind Reiki is that it's this this kind of holy positive kind of force, and uh, the and the practice itself is uh, primarily a hands-on healing practice uh, in its most basic form, uh, but there are also other dimensions of it that kind of instigate spiritual development. There are a set of uh, precepts for kind of controlling one's emotional life and cultivating gratitude and kindness and maybe diligence that 
I think a lot of people have also found equally transformative as the uh, actual hands-on healing practice. And in recent years, people have been kind of rediscovering uh, that in early forms of the practice, there were also associated meditations uh, with Reiki. I mean, I, I feel like the hands-on healing practice itself is almost like a meditation, but then there's also other more formal uh, meditation practices also associated with it. So it's really, it's a full system. It's not just one uh, thing. And I think that because of that, many different practitioners kind of can latch on to different aspects of the practice and uh, find different things fulfilling, maybe at different points in their life. Um, a lot of people talk about kind of initially being drawn to the healing aspects of it, but then later kind of realizing that all this time it's been this kind of personal development, spiritual development practice that has been working kind of subtly below the surface um, is, is something I hear uh, very often from practitioners. Yeah, I think a lot of people assume that Reiki, even the the folks who have actually gone to Reiki practitioners, assume that it's limited to just hands-on healing treatment. So um, it's interesting to to see or to hear from you that there's a, a spectrum of of ranges of of what Reiki actually means. And I'd like mm. to talk about where Reiki actually started. You know, where did it come from? Um, what are the different types of schools of thought? I, I obviously, I think, you know, you've referenced that it started in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd love to, if you can just kind of give us a brief journey of how it started, how did it come to the, to the United States? How did it sort of um, move around globally? Right. Okay. Thanks. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, but it's a pretty complicated <laughs> story. But um, and I could go on for a long time about it. But the summarized version is uh, the founder, a, a Japanese man named Usui Mikao, uh, had this kind of supernatural experience, one could say, on a sacred mountain uh, outside of Kyoto, where he did three weeks of fasting and meditation. And it's said that on the morning of the 21st day, he was struck by a powerful force that descended out of the sky and struck him in the head. And uh, when he kind of revived and he came down the mountain, he had these healing powers. And he was then, uh, what, what I guess what, what they said differentiated him from other healers. And he lived at a time um, in 1920s Japan, where there was a lot of interest in spiritual healing, um, there were many, many therapists performing similar types of healing. But what was said to, to set Usui apart from his contemporaries was he was also able to impart this power, this ability onto others. And so there is an initiation ceremony, which... I'll get to that in a sec, but, but which Usui performed on his students and was said to kind of help facilitate his students' development of the same abilities that their master had acquired on the mountain. At the same time, just as a, as a bit of an aside, while Usui himself claimed that he did not study this method with anyone, that he didn't learn about it in a book, that he didn't acquire it from anyone, but he acquired it mysteriously through his experience on the mountain, there are a lot of influences on his practice that 
I and other researchers have uh, discerned, you know, through our investigations. Among them, there are elements that are kind of borrowed or adapted from practices in Japan associated with esoteric Buddhism. So the initiation ceremony is maybe an adaptation of a kind of Buddhist initiation, um, which also had been used in other types of Japanese culture, Japanese spiritual practice as well, that they're um, the use for advanced practitioners in Reiki of certain symbols that uh, give different abilities, the ability to heal at a distance, for example, um, also seem to be adapted from other kind of traditional Japanese practices that, that are much more ancient than Reiki, uh, which, as I said, kind of started in the 1920s. And there are other aspects, too, which uh, seem to have been borrowed from other therapists of his time. And th those therapists were influenced by practices, actually, surprisingly, in some level, that were imported from the U.S. and translated into Japanese, um, aspects like affirmation, aspects like the laying on of hands, which was very big in the U.S. Um, at the time, influenced by mesmerism from Europe. So even though on some level Reiki is Japanese, the name is Japanese, um, there are aspects of Japanese Buddhism that inform uh, Reiki, it also combines those elements with elements that circulated more globally, mesmerism from Europe, uh, new thought, right, and the power of consciousness from America combined with these uh, maybe more indigenous Japanese practices, which, of course, themselves, you know, thousands of years earlier uh, came from India to China to Japan, too. So, um, yeah, on the one hand, there is this kind of power of saying this is a Japanese practice. Um, it uses uh, some Japanese uh, words and Japanese uh, characters um, in the practice, but at the same time, you know, if you trace back its origins from a wide variety of cultures, kind of you could think of like maybe like the wisdom traditions of various cultures that happened to meet in 1920s Japan in this instantiation and then has spread um, from there. And you asked about how did it come, uh, how did it leave Japan and come to the U.S.? Um, the, so the disciple of Usui, one of the disciples of Usui, a man named Hayashi, had a disciple who was a Japanese-American woman from Hawaii. Um, her name was Hawaiio Takata. And she is basically the reason Reiki is a worldwide phenomenon today. Um, as I mentioned, in Usui's time, there were many such therapies. There was lots of different kinds of spiritual healing going on in 1920s Japan. The vast majority of them died out around the war. But because she had taken Reiki out of Japan um, and was practicing within the Japanese American community of Hawaii. And then that she began teaching on the U.S. mainland, most notably in the 1970s, when uh, there was a lot of interest in spiritual development and in kind of therapies of Asian origin. Um, this is the period that made Reiki possible to become this kind of global phenomenon that it, that it has. Uh, in the last 50 years or so. Wow. I'm also curious, uh, you know, first, actually, I don't even really know what mesmerism is from Europe. So, um, oh, okay. yeah, curious about that. I and mean, also if you could speak to 
data that proves, you know, because you'd mentioned that there's, there's, there were a lot of modalities in Japan that died out, you know, and Reiki survived for a variety of reasons, but I imagine that it also survived because it worked, um, or it was proven to work. And so I'm curious if there is enough data that supports that evidence or if it, if it's mostly, you know, anecdotal at this point, cause I, I can, I just don't really know, you know, what sort of large studies have been done. Um, yeah. Okay, so just real quickly about mesmerism, you know, a lot of times mesmerism uh, today, if you say the word, is associated with hypnotism. Okay. And um, that is one way that mesmerism was used, you know, in the 19th century was as a kind of suggestion therapy, what we now would call like hypnotherapy. But there was another aspect of mesmerism, which was basically said that all uh, living things have what what Mesmer called animal magnetism, um, and later was sometimes called animal electricity, um, which is this kind of vital force, and that by manipulating this vital force in different ways, one enacts healing, and that that all kinds of healing um, and disease are based on different fluctuations of this force. And so in America, uh, mesmerists began experimenting with different forms of, I mean, this started in Europe, but it, it was imported to America um, and from America to Japan with different ways of passing the hands over bodies or laying the hands on bodies to affect the concentration, the circulation of this, um, you know, ostensible force. Now, the problem to uh, transition to your next uh, question about the evidence for its efficacy, the problem is this force has never been able to be measured. There's been a lot of allegations that it correlates with, you know, maybe biophoton emission or with a certain type of quantum resonance. But the jury is really still out on the mechanism uh, behind it, which causes a lot of skepticism, I think, from some medical communities around the force because it, its mechanism is not well understood. However, um, there have been a number of, I mean, there's been a lot of research on Reiki, particularly, but on other forms of similar forms of hands-on healing as well. And it does seem to help uh, with a variety of conditions, although there have been also concerns that some of this research has not been properly blinded, for example, that some of the experimental uh, designs have flaws in them. But part of the problem is it's not a pill. It's not something where um, you could do a double blind experiment where the uh, person administering the treatment doesn't know if it's a real treatment or not. Right? It's just the, the nature of the treatment is that the person giving it knows that they're doing this thing to help someone else. And that might be part of what makes it work. So yeah, there, there has been clinical research. Um, there are a lot of studies that suggest it's helpful for particularly things that, uh, interestingly, you know, biomedicine doesn't have a lot of uh, help for, things like chronic pain, things like depression and anxiety, things like recovery from, you know, post-operative kind of recovery. PTSD is another really interesting area for research. But at the same time, yeah, it's hard to uh, design randomized clinical trials 
on things like Reiki the same way you would on a pharmaceutical. So um, I think within the medical world, you have your believers and you have your skeptics and both can pick, you know, the, their studies or their criticisms to support their, their beliefs. And so it's not really something that the, the jury is out on one way or another. That said, there are a growing number of uh, hospital programs where Reiki is practiced um, in biomedical settings, in part because there are hospital administrators and uh, doctors and nurses particularly who believe in its power, but also because patients uh, want it and it makes people feel better. So, you know, maybe regardless of whether medical science understands how it works or why it works, like you said, I think that the, the fact that people feel its power, the fact that people feel that they are uh, healing more rapidly, that they are in less pain, that they um, are consoled by it maybe on a kind of psycho-spiritual level, that's the reason why it's become popular and why it's, it's been able to be accepted in these uh, biomedical settings. You know, I always tell people that I think, um, you know, trying it and, and having your own personal experience to determine whether it works for you is always the best step forward, right? So I know that several years ago when I tried Reiki, it was, uh, it was an incredible experience. So, mm. you know. It's really interesting. I think for some people, their very first time, you know, on a Reiki table or a friend, you know, puts their hands on their head or something. And some people really just that first time something clicks, they leave their body, they have these kind of you know, psychedelic experiences, these, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> what do you call it when you have a dream that you're totally aware of kind of like lucid, a lucid dreaming. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people really have that very deep experience. A lot of other people just say, Oh, that was like relaxing. You know, I feel, <laughs> I feel chill, you know? Um, and for some people, you know, it really does take, um, I think a lot of experience with it until they get to that deeper place. Uh, so it's really, it's really interesting. You know, they talk about kind of people having like layers, like an onion, right. And some people can just peel back their layers and get to that core kind of experience very easily. And for some people, there's a lot of unpacking to do. There's a lot of, uh, you know, being able to kind of tune in and tune out, I guess. And, you know, those types of abilities, uh, it's really different, I think, from, from individual to individual. Right. Right. Makes absolute sense. Yeah. Uh, Justin, can you walk us through the entire process of how practitioners use Reiki to treat the patient? Just maybe you can give us a brief overview because I imagine the entire process uh, and all the different symbols that exist are probably going to take some time. But if you could maybe just provide a, a general overview of how it works and how, like, let's say a patient walks in um, into a Reiki mm -hmm. practitioner's office, what are, what's sort of the process that happens next? Yeah, um, thanks. So it, it does differ a bit. There are a number of different lineages of Reiki, and so um, it does differ a bit from practitioner to practitioner. And also, as you mentioned, you know, the use of symbols and things like that, um, that not only differs from practitioner to practitioner, but also what level you've reached in your particular lineage. So practitioners at different levels um, will also maybe have certain techniques that are available to some and not others. But in general, I would say a Reiki session starts off maybe with a little, you know, chat about how you're doing, what's going on in your life, you know, if you're feeling any uh, physical 
problems, any kind of mental, emotional problems, any anything going on with you spiritually. I mean, I think there's usually a little kind of intake chat, not always, but you know, that's often. And then person um, often lies down. Um, Reiki, I think these days is, is maybe most often, at least in a professional setting, practiced on a massage table, even though there's not actual, you know, manipulation going on of muscles. Um, it's a nice kind of relaxing uh, setting. In a more informal setting, it might be sitting in a chair, uh, lying down on a couch, on the floor, even on a, on a futon or something. But then the practitioner usually does some kind of centering or, you know, connecting with the source of the, of the Reiki power. I mean, that's, it, again, it differs from lineage to lineage, maybe even practitioner to practitioner, but there's usually some kind of ritual connection aspect there. And then there's usually a laying on of hands. I mean, that's the, at least traditionally how it's been done these days. It seems like more and more people who, who say they practice Reiki are holding their hands just off of the body and kind of like the aura or the, you know, an inch or two off the body. But, uh, traditionally, and I think in most lineages still today, there is a very light touch, um, a gentle touch, um, starting often with the head. Some lineages start with the abdomen, but in usually a series of positions um, that are maybe associated with different organs for the head, you know, covering the eyes, having the heads on the temples, having the heads on the back of the skull, um, treating the throat, treating uh, hands over kind of the heart area, the, and then the abdomen, like I said, the stomach. And then often uh, people will turn over to the back. Um, some lineages also treat the like the shoulders and the elbows and the wrists, you know, the joints, they say, may, can be places of congestion, um, maybe also, uh, you know, corresponding to the lymphatic system. Uh, so there's, there's different lineages that stress different aspects. And also some lineages really stress the practitioner to develop a sensitivity in the hands and to be able to kind of scan the body to find trouble areas that sometimes someone might have an issue that you know manifests itself in one part of the body, but on an energetic level, it said that the cause can be actually uh, you know, proximal, uh, sorry, distal from there, right. And another kind of in another part of the body. So some lineages, right. Want to treat all the major spots in the body in a very systematic way where others have practitioners develop a kind of intuition and a kind of sensitivity in their hands to find these problem areas. And they may treat longer in those spots. So yeah, there's different, there's different approaches. Um, oh, and you mentioned symbols, uh, so yeah, advanced practitioners will use these sacred symbols that uh, the Reiki community in general um, does not like to reveal to the uninitiated, but they are said to enhance the power of the practice. They're also said to help heal mental and emotional um, issues, to help people overcome you know bad habits if you want to stop smoking or stop drinking or, you know, have a healthier relationship with food or things like that. There are Reiki treatments for those things as well. So, and then in the end, usually the person, you know, kind of ends the treatment 
um, does some sort of, you know, closing. There's sometimes a light uh, brushing alongside the spine, um, although in some localities you need a massage license to do that. So some people don't <laughs> do that, um, depending on legality. And then usually a little bit of a, a, a debriefing, uh, maybe having a, a glass of water or a cup of tea, talking about what the person experienced. And um, often, you know, maybe making arrangements for a follow-up session because, you know, one treatment is maybe enough to kind of experience it and say, oh, wow, this is something, you know, interesting. But really, particularly to treat chronic um, issues, you know, an hour or an hour and a half on the table is just kind of, as I said, kind of starting the process. Whereas, you know, to really uh, see results, a lot of times they recommend a minimum of four uh, treatments for sessions. And, and for some chronic issues, it may be, you know, much more than that. And I'm curious, you know, after a session, um, patients probably feel a variety of things. Like there yeah. could be detox for some people, uh, there could be mm. relaxation for others. Um, I'm actually curious, what are some interesting stories you've heard about uh, of patients getting treated with Reiki or even from Reiki practitioners? Yeah. Mrs. Takata, the woman who brought it to America, has a, a million such stories, um, and they're they're very uh, interesting and um, at times almost unbelievable. I mean, but you know, I think one thing that she stresses a lot in um, her stories, and I think you hear it, you know, from practitioners as well, is that there can be. You mentioned detox. There can be these kinds of bringing to the surface things that are kind of deep within. So she talked about you know, treating a patient who had a boil and it kind of like growing and growing and growing and then opening up and like all this like stuff coming out or, uh, wow. you know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of disgusting, but like, um, but then, or, um, you know, also, um, sometimes patients after, you know, treatment might, and this is very common kind of have like some sort of intense bowel movement, uh, where, you know, things are being like flushed out from inside them. It's, I think one of the reasons why uh, they recommend, you know, drinking water and, and things like that after your treatment is that there can be these kinds of releases. And so that, that kind of detox. But other times, I mean, those are very obviously uh, very, very recognizable <laughs> uh, kinds of things. But I think on a more subtle level, I think there's often a lot of kind of emotional uh, work that's being done during a treatment where afterwards sometimes people feel like this like real like feeling of like bliss and like love and acceptance and are just in this kind of blissed out like dreamy kind of state but other times it can bring up maybe some trauma for people and sometimes people feel like a little bit maybe shaken afterwards i know that that's also an experience um that i've encountered with people um with treatments where just feeling a little like vulnerable and like shaky. And again, like this is part of the process, I think. I think it's like another kind of detox, but maybe like an emotional release. And sometimes people cry. I've had people during sessions cry, you know, that there, there's these kinds of releases. And yeah, sometimes it happens on a physical level. Sometimes it happens on, a, on an emotional level. But I think, you know, over time and with practice, and, and another thing I haven't mentioned yet is that, you know, Reiki practitioners um, practice on themselves. I, you know, in part of doing my research on Reiki, 
um, I really dedicated myself to trying to have a daily self-practice where even for five minutes a day, you know, just laying my hands on myself, whether it's, you know, first thing in the morning or in the afternoon, if I need a little break or before I go to bed or something to, to do a little self-treatment, um, is, is always a good thing. And, um, but often, you know, if I have an hour, you know, in my day, this will be, you know, a, a really great, uh, practice is the, the kind of daily self-treatment. And I think, you go through with the self-treatment or if you're getting regular Reiki treatments from someone, you go through these kinds of cycles where something kind of opens up and then you kind of work on it for a while and then it resolves and you kind of feel this new sense of wholeness. And then, you know, over time, there's something else that needs to be worked on too, right? It's never, right. <laughs> I don't feel like you're never at the end of it's a healing journey as they talk about. And, uh, I think it's one of the reasons why, um, Mrs. Takata would encourage her, uh, patients, you know, her clients to take Reiki themselves or to have a family. If someone had, um, chronic illness, maybe to have a family member, uh, take the class so they could get regular treatments. Because as you can imagine, right, going to a professional, um, you, you know, it might work if you have, you know, you want to get four or five or even 10 treatments. Um, but if, if you really are committed to this, this long path of your healing journey, um, learning the practice is the best way to, uh, you know, to, to regularly receive treatments or, and, and she often encouraged, um, friends or family members to take the class together. So then they could trade treatments with each other because the self treatment is really wonderful. Um, but getting a treatment from someone else, it's a, it's a very different experience too. You know, it's interesting. I often tell people that there's no shortcut to the healing journey in the same way that, you know, going to the gym for one day is not going to make you fit. You know, there's a similar right. philosophy around the emotional world and uh, emotional and spiritual world. So thank you for that. And I'm curious, Justin, what brought you to study these Eastern practices and, and focus specifically on Reiki? Yeah. Um, so it's been a, a lifelong journey. <laughs> um, there's a lot of funny twists and turns in it, but the, I mean, from an early age, uh, I was exposed to Asian spiritual practices, uh, through my mom who, uh, has been a TM practitioner, uh, transcendental meditation, um, since I think 1969 or 1970. Wow. And, uh, she, so growing up, you know, I was born in 79. So, you know, growing up in the eighties, she, you know, taught me to meditate from an early age. She was encouraging, you know, we were doing kind of like family yoga, you know, back in the mid to late eighties, um, just at home, we would listen to guided meditation tapes sometimes. And so by the time I was a teenager, you know, these things were, um, in my toolkit, I guess. And I, I, uh, got interested, um, I think also, you know, through reading, uh, the beat literature, like, you know, Kerouac and Ginsburg and, and Snyder and things like that in Buddhism, uh, Herman Hess. And so I want, when I went to university, I wanted to study Buddhism. Um, and I ended up getting into a program in India, uh, to, to do these, um, different kinds of meditation practices, but also study Buddhism from an academic perspective in Bodh Gaya. And my father, he started reading up the U.S. State Department uh, warnings <laughs> on traveling to the state of Bihar, where Bodh Gaya is. And he said, you know what, there, this is not a, a very safe place, you know, for my, my only son to travel. <laughs> you know, how about Japan? Um, there's a Buddhist studies program there as well. 
And so I ended up, you know, that, that's changed my life. I mean, that set me on my course where I started studying Japanese Buddhism, Japanese uh, religion. Um, I was already practicing a kind of chakra meditation and chakra healing uh, practice at that time. And I became interested in Japanese new religions that were doing uh, healing practices. So I, I ended up uh, applying for a grant to study energy healing uh, from an academic perspective. And I got that. So I got to travel to India finally. And uh, that's where I actually got my first Reiki initiations was in India. Um, wow. And then in my master's program, I wanted to compare Reiki with this other practice called Jorei, which, you know, is a more religious practice. Reiki, you know, they say is spiritual, but not religious, right? So that people from any tradition can practice it. But it's also, as, as I was mentioning, kind of a professional practice where people um, have a, a professional calling, you know, and, and make a living being Reiki practitioners. Whereas in Jorei, it's a real religious practice where people don't treat for money, but they encourage people to donate to their temple with their treatment. So I wanted to compare these two and kind of see, you know, the, the contrast. But my, my master's thesis advisors were telling me it's too much. You can't, this is, that's <laughs> not a master's thesis. It's too much. It's too much to do this comparative project. Just focus on one thing. And because not really any, you know, not many people had written about Reiki uh, from an academic perspective at that time. Um, I chose to focus on Reiki and it, that's been, yeah, it's like all these kinds of funny little crossroads. I mean, some people like to say, you know, there, there is no such thing as coincidence, you know, but there, there is a lot of kind of contingency where you imagine what if I had done this other thing with my life, but yeah, here I am, uh, you know, uh, all these years later and I've, I've committed, uh, to this practice as a practitioner and also to studying it, uh, from an academic perspective, understanding its history and, um, you know, how it came to be and, and what these communities, you know, what role Reiki has um, in these individuals' lives and informing these communities. Wonderful. Wow. Very, very interesting journey. And uh, you're very lucky that you're, you grew up with, with such a, I guess, like consciously aware <laughs> family. So I think uh, mm. already set up on a path that's, uh, that's maybe different. So um, yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's interesting. It's like the, from one generation to another generation, right? This kind of, uh, I mean, they, in the, in spiritual world, they often talk about like kind of like spiritual evolution or something like that. But I, <laughs> it's interesting how, you know, I think some people inherit certain things from their parents. Other people have to, you know, reject things from their parents. But, you know, I think, and I think we all do some combination of that maybe, but right. that there are these kind of inter, intergenerational uh, through lines. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Justin, has anything changed since COVID-19 has come into the picture? I mean, we're living in unprecedented times this year and yeah. there is Reiki that can be practiced remotely, I believe. Uh, I'm just curious, yes. you know, how how is Reiki adapting to the times? And I think, I'm sure my audience is very uh, interested in in learning where they can find practitioners because... I right. imagine that they're probably not available in every city. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it is pretty worldwide. I think it's hard to find a country where you, you, there are no Reiki masters. But yeah, I think there are places where they're a lot more prevalent than others. And the the question of, of you know, Reiki in the time of COVID is very interesting because, um, as I mentioned, you know, it's a hands-on practice. It's uh, the initiations um, are done in person and involve the breath as like a kind of way of like imparting the power into the, um, the recipient, 
which, you know, again, with, with concerns about aerosolized, uh, viral, <laughs> whatever, you know, I, mean, I think that <laughs> yeah. there, it is a diff, it is a difficult time, I think, uh, for this practice because, um, of the physical co-presence, um, aspect. However, as you said, um, there are distance treatments and some lineages, the big, the big kind of controversy right now, I think in the Reiki world is about distance initiations and whether, you know, Reiki masters who are initiating students at a distance, you know, whether that's something that, that, um, I think people agree that it, that it works, but they, people think that maybe it's not ideal, um, that to actually spend time in the Reiki class, there are energetic uh, phenomena that are happening, you know, outside of the initiation as well. And that you're kind of, that maybe it's not as optimal as taking a class in person. Um, I do know in some places where the curve has been flattened, where, you know, people are holding, uh, Reiki circles where people exchange treatments, where people are teaching classes in person. Um, but yeah, I think there is a lot of, um, caution and, and rightly so about, you know, being in person, you know, at a time when, when physical distancing, you know, especially in places where they're trying to get the virus under control. Um, on the other hand, you know, I do know that there are these, uh, new types of kind of communal practice where people will send Reiki to, you know, all of those who are afflicted with the COVID-19, um, people who, you know, to, for ecological healing, I know this has been a thing that goes on for a long time as well, kind of sending Reiki to the world and they'll do it. Like, let's say 9 PM, whatever your time zone is, um, you know, send do distance Reiki for this cause for however long. Um, I remember people were doing it for the fires in Australia, um, earlier this year and that they create what they call like a Reiki wave. So, um, you know, all the people in one time zone at 9 p.m. are all sending Reiki and then the next time zone and then the next time zone. So every hour on the hour, there is kind of Reiki being sent from somewhere in the world toward this cause. So that's kind of also, a, 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 I think, a fairly recent, I think, particularly in the time of the Internet, right, a fairly recent phenomenon in the Reiki world and using distance Reiki in a kind of innovative way. Wow. Uh, fascinating. J Justin, are there any resources or places where you can point folks to who want to maybe learn more about Reiki or becoming a Reiki practitioner or maybe getting a Reiki session? Yeah. I mean, it's there's so many types of Reiki out there. And I, I really think that different people are drawn to different practices. So it's hard to say, you know, a kind of one size fits all recommendation. I I mean, I, I, you know, pardon the self-promotion, you know, but I, I have been writing, um, about, uh, Reiki, um, and kind of our, uh, growing understanding of it from kind of a historical and cultural perspective. Um, I have a Facebook uh, page, uh, Justin B. Stein Reiki research, um, where I've been getting very good responses, but I think mostly from practitioners, you know, that people who are already committed, uh, to the practice. For people who are just um, interested in, in in learning more about it, um, I yeah, I'd say really, you know, booking a session with someone, you know, as I, as, as we were talking about, you know, it might be difficult right now, um, depending on where you live, uh, you know, that there is a kind of risk involved. You know, I don't know if if Reiki practitioners out there are wearing, 
you know, gloves and wearing masks uh, for, for practice. I think that that's something, you know, you have to take into account for your own risk. But, you know, to, to get a, a, I don't think there's anything really um, substitutes for getting uh, treatment in person. Although, if you are interested in receiving distance Reiki, I'm sure that it's easy to um, book a distance session as well um, at this time. I'm sure a lot of Reiki practitioners and masters out there are um, eager to send distance treatments. So that might be another thing you could try to experience is, is to book a session um, where probably you would, you would have a particular time where they're going to start sending the energy to you and you would lie down and see if, you know, what you experience. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Justin. This was a very fascinating discussion. I feel like I learned a lot and I also have spent some time practicing Reiki and, and getting Reiki done. So, um, there's obviously so much more to this space than I think we can, um, find kind of on our own. So uh, thank you for doing the research and dedicating most of your life to this, uh, to the study. So again, for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening in this episode, we learned about Reiki energy and how it can transform your life. And you can find more information about Justin Stein at justinstein.academia.edu or Justin B. Stein Reiki Research on Facebook. And we'll also include these in the show notes. And please note that nothing stated on this show should be construed as medical or psychological advice of any kind. Please see a medical professional for all medical assessments and treatments. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. 